the Arena Football Hall of Fame has returned, and we want you to become a part of the family. Introducing the Arena Football Hall of Fame Patreon. Whether an all-star or a Hall of Famer, our reasonably priced tiers each have their own exclusive perks. Early access to the AFL Rewind podcast, honorary selection committee member, and much more. Help us build a Hall of Fame we'll all be proud of. Head to patreon.com slash AF Hall of Fame to join. And welcome to AFL Rewind, a look back at all things arena football. Sponsored by Phenom Elite. I'm your host, Tim Capper. Well, since we released the episode with Eddie Brown, uh, some news came across the wire that we wanted to at least mention. Um, because the gentleman that passed was a huge part, not only in Arena Football League history, but was also a huge part in Arena Football League history in Albany, New York. We want to mention the, that the uh, that one of the owners of the original uh, Albany franchise, Glenn Missoula, passed away recently. And we felt that we at least needed to acknowledge uh, what he did for the Arena Football League and for uh, for the city of Albany. No, it's funny. If you were to look, I mean, what would what would the revisionist history be? If, and for the league, if Glenn and uh, Joe O'Hara had not brought that team into into the league itself, we we could only guess what would happen. But the main thing is, is that he did. So everybody here wants to uh, give our condolences and thoughts to his family. And as I said before, uh, he is a one part of the Arena Football League family that will be missed. For this episode, as we're coming across the uh, and just passing the the 28th anniversary since the Arena Football League first stepped into the country of Canada and the 23rd anniversary of the very first regular season game played in Ottawa, Ontario, we wanted to bring in the gentleman who was uh, responsible for Canada's team and Canada's only, te- only team within the Arena Football League, and that is the Toronto Phantoms. So we're going to be speaking with Rob Godfrey, who is the president, was the president and CEO of the team, and we'll be able to hear a little bit of the story behind uh, how much they had to endure to bring the team into the Arena Football League, for the city of Toronto to accept them, and for the headquarters of the Arena Football League to try to understand what it actually took and how to do it right when it comes to dealing with this team in Canada. So without further ado, Rob Godfrey. And this episode of the podcast uh, is a treat not only for myself, but I would hope for other Canadian fans that are fans of the Arena Football League and for those across the league. Uh, We're going to get some inside information and the story about the Arena Football League's only Canadian franchise in their history. Uh, The Toronto, they are the Toronto Phantoms. On the line with us now is the former president and CEO of the Toronto Phantoms, Rod Goffrey. Hey, Rob, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me here, Tim. Good to be here. Um, we want to get to some information about the actual team itself. I mean, you know, there were talks about uh, in the Globe and Mail and I think in the National Post, you know, twice in nine, one in 96 and one in 98. There were quote unquote reports about Toronto getting an actual team in the in the Arena Football League. But on September 1st, 
2000, there was actually uh, a report or breaking news or a leak, whatever it may be. Maybe you can clear, clarify on that. Uh, on a report from Marty York, I think it was over on, uh, at the time, it was CTV Sportsnet. It's talking about yeah. how there was a rumor going on that the um, that a team was going to be coming to Canada. It's going to be coming to Toronto. And it was going to be the former New England Seawolves. Um, before we get past that point and that actual date itself where the where the information came out, Rob, where at where in the on the calendar did it start that you and your group looked at bringing an Arena Football League team to Canada? It started in about May of 2000, I would say, maybe a month earlier, maybe April of 2000, but it was certainly the very beginning of the baseball season. Okay, uh, in 2000, because. Uh, at the time, uh, a client of mine, I was in investment banking, uh, a client of mine, a gentleman by the name of Keith Stein, who worked for Magna, uh, the auto parts company. And I had gone to a Blue Jay game of all places. And he said to me at the time, what do you think of arena football? And I remember saying to him, we were sitting in the box at the, at the Blue Jays game. And I remember saying to him, well, I, I like arena football, but, but why do you ask? And he said, well, what would you think about bringing a team to Toronto? And I'll tell you what I flashed to it at that time. Mm -hmm. In 2000, I was 27 years old. I flashed to a story that I had grown up with uh, almost my whole life, was the story of how my father uh, brought the Toronto Blue Jays to Toronto and how they had gone through uh, the trials and tribulations of chasing a Major League Baseball team and how they started in the late 60s. And how at one point they thought they bought the San Francisco Giants and to move them to Toronto. And that was the, the highest of all highs. And then the mayor of San Francisco, a guy named Bob Lurie, uh, ended up getting an injunction to, to stop the team from moving. And then how they got, they got the team finally in 1977, uh, which was an expansion team in the American League, along with the Seattle Mariners. To, for the Jays to come. So I, I grew up hearing the story of how my father spent eight years chasing Major League Baseball. At, at the time, he had spent a, a number of years and still continues today chasing NFL for, for Toronto. So I figured, well, look, if, if we're going to chase arena football for Toronto, that would be a fun project. It would be something that I'm sure would take a number of years. And, uh, you know, what, what could be more fun than chasing a sport I love to bring to the city that's never been never been here before. Mm -hmm. I'm sure we'll talk more about it as, as we, as we go along here today, but long story short, it took really six weeks to negotiate the purchase of the team and another six weeks to close it. And before I knew it, we had, uh, we had a team in the arena football league. Crazy. That's just, that seems to be such a short period of time, especially back then when, you know, the salary cap of what it was at the arena football league and, and the prices itself what made you and your and your group actually go after the MSG? That's the Madison Square Garden owned New England Sea Seawolves. Well, my uh, Keith Stein at the time had reached out to Commissioner Baker and talked about uh, the idea of bringing a team to Toronto, whether that would be expansion or or a sale. And Baker immediately put us onto Mark Hamster, who had owned the uh, Buffalo Destroyers. Right. And he said, look, Mark is, I believe he was, the, he was the head of a committee. I think it was the head of the relocation committee. And he said, there's a team that's up for sale. He'd like us to go, go meet with them. And so we drove, drove to Buffalo and we had a meeting with Mark in, in Buffalo. And 
in that very first meeting, we had negotiated to buy the team for $7 million. Okay. And it was really out of the blue. We didn't, I will tell you at the time, we didn't have financing. We didn't drive to Buffalo with the idea of, okay, we're going to come back with a football team. And I remember a bunch of us sitting in our, in uh, my family's backyard at the time and my father popping out. And at, at, at this time in 2000, he was working with Rogers on purchasing the Toronto Blue Jays. And I said to him, look, Dad, I don't know how to explain this to you, but I think we just bought a football team. And he said, you, you did what? <laughs> I said, we, so I think we just bought a football team. He goes, well, how are you going to pay for it? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> and really what we spent was the next, I spent, I was, as I said, I was in investment banking at the time. I spent the next six weeks really working two jobs. I would go in the morning to my job at, at TE Securities and work in investment banking. And then I would escape to go to investor meetings to go try to pitch the idea to investors that this was a good idea to bring to, to Toronto. Uh, and then I would go back and work very late at night to make sure I got caught up in all my investment banking activities. So I didn't, uh, you know, didn't find myself without a job. Right. And, and even still at the time, there was never any plan for me to leave investment banking and go run a football team. This was uh, a, a very fun side project for me. Mm-hmm. But I'll tell you, the first people we went to go see were the folks at Rogers Communications. Okay. And we went to go see the, uh, the, the CFO at the time, a gentleman by the name of Alan Horn. Uh, and I knew at the time through, through my father that they were negotiating to buy the, buy the Blue Jays. So I figured this is perfect. <laughs> we're going to get Rogers to be the major investor in, in the Phantoms. We had $1 million already in the bank. And that was from uh, the Strasser family who owned a company called Phantom Industries, which makes of all things, women's hosiery. And that's how the name became the Phantoms. And we figured, okay, look, we're going to go to Rogers. We're going to wrap this thing up. We're going to, I'm going to come out of here the same way I came out of the meeting in Buffalo with Mark Hamster, having negotiated to buy a team. I'm going to go pitch this to Rogers. We're going to walk out with all the financing and Bob's your uncle. We're going to be done here. <laughs> My meeting at Rogers Communications lasted 30 seconds. Oh, boy. They said, to Alan Horn told me at the time, not only are we not interested in buying an arena football league team, whatever information you have that we're interested in buying the Blue Jays is not necessarily right. We may not even be buying the Blue Jays. So we're not interested. And at the time, I was 27 years old, and they basically gave me the kid, get out of here bit. Yeah. And so we went out and we looked for financing elsewhere. And we found financing at the time from the folks who ran Yogan Cruz, uh, who is a Soraya family. We mm-hmm. found financing from John Levy, John Levy at the score. Uh, and we found the biggest chunk of financing was from the Thompson family uh, to, to be our lead investor. And you mentioned what happened on September 1st. Yes. Uh, the, the, the column by, by Marty York. Yep. Well, an interesting thing happened the day before that. So we were we were getting close to to finalizing our deal here to purchase the purchase the team. We had lined up all the financing, and on, on August thirty first, Rogers had agreed to buy the Blue Jays, <laughs> and the very next day was going to be the announcement. Okay. So back back in those days, I would listen to the uh, on the fan the tw- what they called their twenty twenty sports updates. Yes, I remember. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah, and so the the news would leak out a little bit more about every hour on Rogers buying the Blue Jays, 
And first it started with tomorrow there's a rumor that the Blue Jays are going to be sold. And then an hour later they had the information that Rogers was going to, Rogers was going to buy the team. And then an hour later, how much money? And then there's going to be a press conference tomorrow. And then Paul Godfrey is going to be the CEO. And they kept getting this information every hour. After about six or seven hours of listening to the fan, I figured, look, I'm going out to, out to dinner with some friends. You know, forget all about this. I'll go to the press conference tomorrow and really have the opportunity to watch my father take the job as CEO of the Blue Jays as the, the dream job he always wanted. Yeah. And so I go out with my friends that night, and it's about one in the morning. The girl I was, I was dating at the time, I dropped her off at, at home, and I'm driving home, and I turn on the radio at about one in the morning, and they say, tomorrow, our lead story is tomorrow, Rogers is going to buy the Toronto Blue Jays for $150 million, and there's going to be a press conference at, at one o'clock, and Paul Godfrey is going to be the CEO, and they go on with that news story. And then they say, in a related story, Paul Godfrey's son, Rob, has agreed to buy the New England Seawolves from Madison Square Garden to become the first arena, franchise, or arena football franchise in Canada. So it leaked on a day that it wasn't supposed to leak. Okay. Of all, of all the times for the story to leak, you didn't want it to leak on the same day that another team in, in our city is being, is being purchased. And certainly a team, as you can appreciate, is that, that's much bigger than, than our arena team. Yeah, yeah. So... The, what, the were, you, were, you, were, you, were you frustrated? Were you, I mean, what, what was your initial thought, you and your ownership's thought, considering that, you know, the, you know, the, the thing, the story broke on September 1st is also included with the Blue Jays getting bought. What was your thoughts in, in the ownership group when you guys heard this? Did you have to shift immediately or did you say, I guess it is what it is? Well, you know what I, I to, to begin with, I almost drove off the road. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. And it led to a, a sleepless night and sending out notes to the, to the investors saying, look, it wasn't me who leaked this. I wouldn't have wanted this leaked and that, and that sort of thing. Right. What it did create a shift because I will tell you, if you fast forward to 1 PM on September 1st, I'm standing with my father waiting for Ted Rogers to arrive at what, what is, what was then the sky dome of course, which is now the Rogers center. Yeah. And here I am planning to just watch this, this press conference. And Ted pulls up in his in his chauffeur driven car and he gets out and he heads right for me and he shakes my hand and he says, Rob, congratulations on the purchase of the arena team. I said, well, thank you, Ted, but but nothing is really done yet because nothing was really done yet. We had arranged financing, but the ink was certainly not even on the paper, much less dry. Yeah. So he looked at me and goes, Rob, I'm going to ask you to excuse us. I need to have a word with your father alone. I said, well, Ted, it's your day, by all means. So he pulls pulls my father aside and he says, Paul, I want to know what this Arena Football League team you're working on is. What's this all about? And of course, rightly so, my father says, look, I'm not working on any Arena Football League team. This is something done done by, by my son. The fact that the media has reported that it's somehow a related transaction is not related in any way. And Ted says, well, why wouldn't you give us the opportunity to own the team? <laughs> and he says, well, Ted, he went and pitched your guys, pitched Alan Horn on being the lead investor in this team. And he basically got kicked out of the Rogers offices. And he said, well, I think that's ridiculous. He said, I think we should own the majority of the team. And that's how that leak changed everything. Because wow. I went from a guy who was very happy in, a, in, in investment banking to not thinking I would work in sports to not having, you know, there's uh, lots of, 
lots of kids that, that grew up thinking one day I'm going to work with my dad and take over his business. Mm-hmm. That didn't exist for me. There was no opportunity to take over any business my father was in. He didn't own a business. So there was no prospect of ever working with or for for my father. And in a short six-week period, I went from working in investment banking to not only working in professional sports and being the president of the of the Toronto Phantoms, but also being in an organization owned by Rogers where in many respects, the two organizations between the Blue Jays and Phantoms were merged on the business side of the operation, right. to some degree on the athletic training side of the operation. So it, uh, it was really a whirlwind. And all of a sudden, here we are. I was working for Rogers and working for, for my dad. And Thompson was no longer the lead investor. And the rest, as they say, uh, is, is history. Yeah. Uh, when you, I wanted to ask you, when you talked about when you were pitched by David Baker and the different committee that you were speaking with, like at the relocation committee, uh, did you guys bat an eye when they told you the $7 million price tag? Because, you know, at that time, they, uh, I think it was as early as maybe two or three years, uh, sorry, about five years prior to that, their arena league teams were going for approximately anywhere between one to two million. Did you guys bat yeah. an eye considering that this team... In essence, Toronto was going to be their third city for this same franchise. They started off in in New York as the City Hawks, then they mm-hmm. went to then they went to uh, they went to Hartford, and then now they're going to be heading to Toronto. Did you feel that mm-hmm. the seven million dollar price tag was a fair amount? I, th- I think we all gasped a little and thought that it was high. At the very same time, David Baker uh, was then, and I imagine uh, is now, on behalf of the the Pro Football Hall of Fame an incredible salesman and talked about the option that the NFL had on, on the, on the league and talked about how other franchises were going for that amount and higher. It wasn't until we got into the league and we found out that certain things weren't as they, as they first appeared. For instance, the league purchased back the Oklahoma city. I'm going to forget their name now. I can't believe it. The Wranglers. The Wranglers. It's funny. I could, I could see the, uh, I could see their mascot, the horse, <laughs> but I couldn't remember their their name. That they purchased back the Wranglers at a pre- at a very high price. I can't even remember what they purchased it back at, but they purchased it back at a high price, and that they were out there peddling franchises for that seven, eight, nine, ten million dollar mark. In fact, I believe the Philadelphia Soul got purchased from the league as an expansion franchise for a big, big amount, but. As you, as I was around the league more, you found out that teams were going for much lower, and in retrospect, uh, it was uh, it was an amount that that was paid that was far too high. Now, do I think, you know, do I think we could have gotten it for less? I don't know. We would have probably had to hold out longer and talk to more people in the league and buy one of the other troubled franchises. I imagine looking back, had we called the owners of the of the Oklahoma City franchise, we may have been able to get them for two or three billion. Yeah. Yeah. Um oh that's actually that, that, all this is interesting stuff. Um it, being that you, you now have the team, um you um you have to there are a lot of things that you have to do, obviously, because this is the very first franchise in in uh, in Canada in AFL history. Um was there and at any point that the team was not going to be playing at the what used to be called the Air Canada Center, um, I'm sure there was a, there was a possibility. I remember looking at other at other options of other places to play, but ultimately the 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 gentleman who I dealt with at Maple Leaf Sports Entertainment was a guy named Bob Hunter, 
who is no, of course, no, I believe he's retired now. And so obviously no longer there, but he had a history of, uh, he was, he worked at the Sky Dome for the stadium, not for the team, not for the Blue Jays. And I had spent some summers working there. So I had a history with, with Bob and knew him well. And they seemed to put on the full court press uh, to, to have us play there. The really big thing, there were two big things. There, the context of things were that the Toronto Rock lacrosse team yeah. had come in and most people didn't give them a chance at, at being a successful franchise and they managed to pack the stand. Yeah, and so yeah. that was the backdrop for us coming in. A lot of people compared us to, well, if lacrosse can do that, we should be able to blow the doors off uh, as well. And I think a lot of people are not familiar with lacrosse and far more people are familiar with football, even though it's a, it's a different brand of football Yeah, uh, that would, that people just thought it was, it was going to be a, a home run, like just like lacrosse was. Um, and okay. So knowing that the lacrosse, that the, the, that the rocker in the picture, you also have the Raptors that were there uh, and, and also the Leafs. Um, were you concerned and you and the ownership concerned that you will be essentially, you'd be a, a four, you'd be the fourth tenant on, uh, when it came to choosing dates, how hard was it to get dates considering when you got the team and when it was announced, which we'll get to here in a couple of minutes, but how hard was it to get dates that you felt were going to work for Toronto? Cause, uh, cause those are no Toronto, Toronto fans can be slightly different, you know, uh, mm-hmm. you know, we know they love their Leafs. We know they love their Raptors, and as you as you just mentioned, the Rock drew very, very well. How how yeah. how are you guys thinking uh, about when it came to uh, getting dates that you wanted at the ACC? That was part of the the sales pitch that the ACC put on and Bob Hunter put on for us was that because we were an April to October sport was it is October was the end was, was that the end uh, it was because we were August sorry yeah. I'm thinking I, think I keep keep thinking about baseball because we're April to August uh, sport that a lot of the dates would be, uh, would be available for us. The only things we were really running into were uh, Leafs and, and Raptors playoffs, right? Because that's where you could be moved. So that was really the, the big wild card for us. Um, but beyond that uh, dates, dates weren't a hard thing to, uh, to come by. Okay. okay. You know, and, and they we were very much like a, even though you you are correct, we're much we're a fourth team in reality, but given the time that we were there, in many cases we were a first team, and I'm not sure we were fourth behind the rock. It was just a matter of if we had selected dates ahead of them, they couldn't bump us, and we couldn't bump them. Right. Um, what was it like bringing? Because obviously, with you you buying the franchise from from New England, do you you get all of you know the IPs and you get all the dashboards, you get all the equipment, etc. And this is one of the things that I think a lot of fans need to to think about, and what I was curious to know, because obviously you got to deal with up here, you got to deal with with customs. At first, how how easy or how hard was it to get all this, all this, uh, all this, you know, all this equipment now, including the dashboards, et cetera, through Canadian customs and up into Canada? You know, oddly enough, it wasn't hard at all, and it's it's uh, I we're all raised to believe that we live in a in a world where everyone is treated. Uh, treated exactly the same under under the law or in school or in jobs. And the, the truth of the matter is that that doesn't really exist that way. And mm-hmm. people were are so sports crazy, both in this country and south of the border, that when they found out it was for 
the arena football team, there was, it was a very easy transition. There were no duties paid. They let it come right through. There was no, there was, there was no hold up at the border whatsoever. Everything was properly documented and they let us bring it all up. That's amazing, considering that, you know, that you have bought you. I mean, you guys essentially bought this equipment having no duty on that. That's actually that's actually I'm sure you guys are happy to hear that because I'm sure it saved you guys some money. Oh, yeah. No question. But but it does remind me of the stories when George Bell played for the Blue Jays many, many years ago. He used to reenter Canada. Now, it's not something you could ever do today. Right. But he used to reenter Canada every single year with a visa that he never bothered renewing. <laughs> oh man! <laughs> and back in those now, look, we, we lived in different days. Yes. Those are those were the eighties. But this wasn't some guy coming into the country that you didn't know. This was George Bell. This was you know the the home team's hero. And so they just looked right past it and had him walk. You know, let him go by. Now, obviously, times are are different today. But even twenty years ago, when we brought all that stuff up. It was it was not a problem. Wow, that's that's good to hear. Now you mentioned before that uh, you know because of who who was part of the ownership group that the team sort of adopted the name the Phantoms, or was it actually the case, Rob? Did, was there at any point where the team was actually possibly were there other names thought of besides the team being called the Phantoms in the end? No, it was always going to be the Phantoms. Ronnie Strasser, who. Uh, who was the, the main guy from Phantom Industries, said, look, if I'm going to commit the first million, then you're going to name this team the Phantoms. And, uh, and, and that was it from there. No one ever questioned it. The, the part that was questioned was that when it came to logo design, yes, that we had quite a bit of pushback from the league on the Grim Reaper-type mascot, on the, the blood coming off the sickle, that sort of thing. There was even one... Uh, one year we wanted to send out Christmas cards that the league got got uh, you know got got wind of and decided to tell us that we weren't allowed to do that. It was a Christmas card that said "Seasons Bleedings." <laughs> As a season ticket and, holder, I wish I would have gotten that one. <laughs> I know, right? Like here, here's here's the thing. Even when I was when I spent time at the Blue Jays, I've long been an advocate. If you're going to do something like send out a Christmas card. You should make sure that yours stands out for one reason or the other, whether it's saying Christmas uh, season seasons bleedings, which get will you know will get get noticed and people will remember you, or do yourself a favor, send out a Christmas card in July. People will recognize you, will will remember it. Yeah. And so uh, I don't think they realize that that's what they that's what we were going for. And if you look at the state of what goes on social media today, mm-hmm. or on the on the web, I think. By comparison, seasons bleedings is pretty mild. It's it's, it's tame, and, and considering yeah. that, also the same year that you guys came into the league, uh, the LA Avengers were an expansion franchise. And considering what they did for their advertising on their uh, for on their billboards, they got away. With, it looked like they got away with a lot more uh, than oh, you guys the, were able to on a just on a Christmas card. Yes, well, so but but there was a key difference there. Yeah, there was I, a very key difference there. Casey Washer. The, <laughs> Casey Washer. Let me tell you. Let me tell you this: that that I quickly be, be realized that that uh, Case, Casey Washerman could have you know thrown up in the middle of you know in the middle of the dinner table, mm-hmm. and uh, David Baker and and 
a lot of the staff around the league would applaud and say they've never seen vomit quite like that. That was <laughs> that was a beautiful job. And so whatever Casey did or touched was was uh, responded to with great applause. Right. Yeah. And and that that was L.A. and Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, we were uh, we <laughs> we were just being uh, rebellious and uh, uncivil. I don't understand why. I mean, Toronto at the time was the Hollywood of Canada. So, I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah. Look, I don't I don't I don't get it either. Um, but that that's sort of the way things the way things were and uh you know, Casey was was treated uh was treated differently around around the league and now, you know, do, do, so you think, <laughs> do you think also you got some of the pushback because of the possibility of the NFL coming in or, the, or how the NFL was tied to the league at that time? Yeah, I would think so. Yeah. I would think so. They were very concerned about uh, about what the NFL thought. I, I remember being on the, the league board of directors and, and how they responded to every single phone call, letter communication, in-person meeting with the league as if any misstep would get them to not pick up the option or that sort of thing, which, which right. of course is just, you know, looking back on it is not accurate at all. Yeah. You know, if, if the league wanted the, wanted the option, it, they would have picked up the option. It had nothing to do with uh, how, how anyone behaved. In fact, I think had we stood out, stood out more and been more outrageous in our, or more irreverent in our marketing than we would have, you know, maybe, you know, maybe had a different view. People would have a different view of us. Yeah. Um, was the the infamous uh, was the Grim Reaper? Was that the the initial logo that you're going with? It was because obviously, for those who don't know, the Phantoms did have the the, the uh, which I ended up loving in in the end was the the, the Grim Reaper logo with the sickle. You had the mm-hmm. in, the interesting helmet logo on the front, which I want to ask about, and then the another one, which was the PH, which I really don't understand. I'm hoping you're going to be able to give context with. But how long did the? I mean, you're in. You're basically. Six, you know, six months away from starting the season, and you have to get this entire branding done quickly. Who did you guys um, uh, hire to do the branding for the team? Uh, we, we hired a division of McLaren McCann, the uh, the ad agency, to uh, to do the branding. Okay, uh, and, and they came up with with all of those things. The PH thing was something we had we had talked about as just a. It, it was our own way of sort of breaking the rules, and here's what I mean by that. If you if you look at uh, I'll do the easiest example of Toronto Raptors, right? And that they they have a logo that has T for Toronto and R and TR together. Why couldn't and so it was it was sort of a breaking the rules. Why do you have to be TP for Toronto fans? Why can't your logo be PH? And we we spent a lot of time talking about even even Nike. What what does the swoosh mean? Right. It doesn't mean anything. It's just yeah. a it's just a, a stylized logo. So we thought we could have a lot of fun with the pH bit uh, and the, the, the F sound. Yeah. So you'll notice that even the, the cheerleaders became the fantasy girls kind yeah. of thing with a pH in it. And so it was a way to tie the 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 name of the team, the Phantoms, into a lot of things that you might not otherwise be able to tie uh tie into like what what's the point of calling him fantasy girls if you can't spell it with a ph right no okay right they could they could be called anything they could be called the phantom dance pack or that that sort of thing so it was more just a way of of us somewhat breaking the rules 
yeah. if we could, or the yeah. perceived rules. For sure. And um, as I said before, the, the alternate logo itself, the flying, I guess, what, was there an alternate name for that thing? The, I, I call it the flying phantom, but but it, that's it on the front of the uh, of the helmets. Yeah, with, the, with the wings. Yeah. Yeah. Once again, it, it, it just, we, we just talked about it. All, all of it factored into the whole idea of how do we, how do we break rules here? And we break, and what I mean by that is if you're designing a football helmet, every single football helmet has their logo on the side of it. Right. Right. And the ones that don't have a design over the whole, the whole helmet, like, like the Bengals Mm -hmm. do, for Mm -hmm. instance. So why not create something where the logo is, is up front, but to do that, like that, the, the phantom bit didn't work. Like the phantom with the sickle, Yes, that the sort of what we'll call the primary logo didn't work. So they just went to town working on what other things could could go, and that's what they came up with. And I thought it was actually quite a quite a neat logo. Oh, I agree. I, I agree with you. Uh, were the colors always going to be the light blue and silver? Uh, they were always going to have blue. Okay. In it. It, it's funny that the, the Raptors have really changed things uh, for the for the city, but I think there was the general belief that Toronto teams are blue. Right. That the the Leafs are blue, the Blue Jays are blue, the Argos are blue, mm-hmm. and at the time the Raptors, who were purple and and red at the yeah. time, is like, yeah, but that's the Raptors. They've only been around at the time five years, you know. Yeah. That that doesn't represent Toronto. So it was always something that the blue was always going to be around, and then the rest was just how we differentiate. And if you remember at the time, look, black was probably the the hottest color for every yep. team was starting to use black in their logo. Yep. I, I will admit, I remember that we're seeing the, the, the uniforms for the very first time, you know, the logo on the silver helmet and then the black unis. Uh, I, one thing I'd always wished though, Rob, was that the league had, cause this, the, the league started to go with alternate jerseys, et cetera, et cetera, uh, down the line. But I'd always wished that, uh, that the that the team had gone with a, uh, possibly with either a silver or a, a blue jersey. I thought that would have looked pretty sharp, but I mean, I can understand why the team went with the, uh, with the, the, uh, the all black at home. Uh, look, I, I think so too. I think it would have been fun to have a silver or blue one or a baby blue one. I, it, look, it, I can't imagine the fun we would have had had it gone on beyond two seasons. Yeah. Uh, I will tell you from a personal perspective, it is still the most fun I've had in my entire life was running the, the Toronto fans. And that was, that was a blast, whether it was uh, some of the stories we had with, with our own players or mm-hmm. with competing players mm-hmm. um, or, you know, or, or the coaching staff and that sort of stuff. Like I, I remember, look, I, for whatever reason, and I don't know why I developed a, an amazing relationship with Aaron Garcia uh, of the, of the dragon. Yes. Yeah. And Aaron had talked about, he kept saying to me, you know, one day I want to come play there. And, and we talked quite a bit and we became good friends and we ended up texting each other and calling each other in the off season and that sort of thing. So you'll remember the last playoff game that we were ever in, we lost to the New York Dragons. That's right. And Aaron Garcia pulled off one of the great feats I've ever seen that day. And the reason, and what people don't realize is I had Aaron Garcia out till four in the morning drinking the night before. <laughs> wow. I figured I'm going to take this guy out and I'm going to show him the night of his life. And then he came out and kicked our ass the next day. It was was, great. Yeah. Really quite the feat. Great stories to learn about the goat. I tell you. (laughs) Yeah. Um, 
your your launch date is coming up soon, which ended up being the official date was October seventeenth. But you also had to decide on who you're going to get. As uh, obviously you had inherited some players, but also you weren't able to inherit your head coach. How mm-hmm. uh, obviously Mark Stout ended up being the head coach for the two years. Um, mm-hmm. Why didn't Mike Hoensey want to come up to Toronto, or was it once the team was sold, he said, "I'm I'm not gonna." Uh, what, what was the story behind that? You know, I only had the opportunity to meet with Mike once after after we had agreed to purchase the team. Uh, Commissioner Baker had said to me, "Look, you better you better go speak to Hoensey. I think he's I think he's going to go uh, coach for Chicago." So I met once with him, and here's the truth of it: that the deal was already baked for him to go to Chicago. Oh, okay. There wasn't really the chance for me to to keep him in 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 Toronto. Okay. So. Uh, and then I, I met with, I spoke on the phone with one, I'm trying to remember, it's 20 years ago now, so I'm, I'm <laughs> trying, I, I met with one, uh, two other people to interview them, and I talked to one guy on the phone. The one guy I talked to on the phone was uh, a guy who had coached here in Toronto, who uh, who just more wanted to chat and wasn't interested in doing anything, was Mouse Davis. Do you remember Mouse Davis? I do, I do, yes. So I spoke to him, and that wasn't really, that was more of a, a dead end than anything else. And the two guys I spoke to were Larry Kuharik and Coach Stout. Okay. And I had an okay meeting with Larry Kuharik. And when I sat down with Stout, Stout, it just it just seemed to click and fit. And and uh, you know, if there were things that I could go back and change, hiring Mark Stout would not be one of them. Like I I, I would have left that as as it was. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, so I'm I'm you know he he seemed to understand offense very very well he had a horrible temper which uh which we still laugh about to this day you know if i if i see people who were played on the team or or worked in the front office so we still still have fun doing our own mark stout imitations <laughs> but uh but it it felt like the the right thing and i'm glad we did that yeah now uh what was it to like with the the, the players because obviously anybody who who has seen the roster for the Phantoms in 2000, 2001, 2002, know that you guys have had some Hall of Famers come through you and play for you. Mm-hmm. Um, how? What was it like um, talking to the, the team for the first time? Obviously, you're having to deal with it, the general manager, obviously, head coach, et cetera, to, to decide who's going to be coming. But um, wh- what was it like trying to convince you and your, your coaching staff, trying to convince these guys to come and play in Toronto? Uh, you know what? It, it wasn't as hard as you would like. There, there were the guys we inherited. So, like that, to me, the most, the most, two most important guys we inherited, or maybe three most important guys we inherited, were Charlie Davidson. Yep. Uh, who I have seen and spoken to as recent as August of last year, September okay. of last year. Wow. So not long ago, I still keep in touch with with Charlie, who's a who is now a preacher. Um, and you can you can. You know, if you ever get a chance to speak to him, which I'd be happy to sure. to arrange for you to, to, to speak to him, you can certainly tell him on the podcast that if he's a preacher now, it's not because of any of the way he behaved when he was here in Toronto. <laughs> and you can tell him you can tell him that on the podcast okay. if you'd like. <laughs> um, so I'd say him, uh, Chad Salisbury, yep, and uh, and and Damian Harrell, yes. Uh, were, were probably the three most important. So those guys came along. I think that the hardest one was with Salisbury because, uh, look, I'm, I'm a firm believer that I, I, 
as much as uh, I love sports and, you know, have, have been around it and love arena football, that I am not in a position to evaluate talent. I, I know where, where I'm strong and where I'm weak, and I, I can certainly tell you that talent evaluation is not one of them. Mm-hmm. Here was the, the big problem with, with Chad Salisbury is that we needed a backup quarterback. And I had had the opportunity at the previous Arena Bowl to meet Pat O'Hara, and we sort of, we sort of had, a, had a good conversation, and Stout suggested that I reach out to O'Hara to see if he'd be interested to come and play. And that was really the only time I got involved in any kind of recruiting uh, of, of players. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe saving except for my, my friendly drinking sessions with, with Aaron Garcia. <laughs> but, but I had never, never been involved, never planned to be involved. So the fact that I had my fingerprints on bringing O'Hara in didn't make for a, you know, uh, the best relationship between Chad Salisbury and I. Okay. Because he had felt, he felt, and I will tell you improperly so that that O'Hara was my guy, which is just not the case. Uh, you know, Chad started the the first number of games, and when he got injured, O'Hara took over, and there was no, or was it the other way? Uh, no, you know what? O'Hara got injured, and the other way. But like, there was no, there was no in, uh, uh, interference from me on that. Right. On on on. Chad starting over Pat, like I'm not in a position to make that call. And guys like Mark Stout had been around long enough to to know who should be in there. Right. You weren't you weren't the type of uh, of owner who would mess with the, who you think should be on the roster. You left that to the you left that to your to the your coaches that you had that you had hired. That's right. That's right. So okay. well, I can tell you after speaking because I, I know Pat quite well uh, that mm-hmm. Pat enjoyed his time in Toronto immensely. And had nothing but nice things to say about the organization. So I, I can tell you that. Well, that's good. Look, that's good to hear. I'm a, I'm a big fan for, uh, of his as a person. Uh, I uh, have not reached out to him. I know he's got a, uh, a fairly big job with the Houston Texans, of which I will tell you uh, I, he is more than qualified for. And the Houston Texans are a lucky organization to have him. But uh, just over the years, we've lost touch. But I am, I am so proud that, that this was one of his stops along the way. And I, I no doubt believe that, that he's going to do bigger things uh, than, than where he is now. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of Pat. And also, who, who would have thought, I mean, just a couple of years in, you end up having a Hall of Famer in Damon Harrell. He was just in, and I think he was probably one of the fan favorites uh, in, in Toronto, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. Look, the... The funniest thing is that I, uh, you know, part of my part of my life, I grew up in the, in in Florida, and all my friends who I grew up with were either University of Florida fans or Miami fans, and by default, I became a Florida State fan. So long before meeting Damian Harrell and Canal Spain, I was a big Florida State fan. So to have these guys come, I felt like a little kid around them. <laughs> you now I didn't feel like the owner of a team. I'm like, I can't believe I've got two. Big time ex Florida State Seminoles here. Yeah, and it was that just felt that was the coolest thing ever. Well, I think if anybody who knows you and, and you and I, you know, you and I met as it was with the internet back then uh, through email and stuff like that. I know that you you were besides being the owner of the team. I know how seriously you took it and how uh, how emotional it was for you to have this team. So I, I can tell you, and we'll, we'll talk about that. You know, once the at the end of the the pod when when the phantoms decided not to come back in 03 but i, I remember how mm-hmm. how passionate you were about this team so i can i can vouch mm-hmm. for everybody who's listening that you were 
you were the owner, but you were also emotionally invested in the team itself. So, oh yeah, for sure, um, for sure. Leading up to your announcement in October, officially, um, what were the uh, some of the other challenges that you had um, in, in getting you know right leading up to when you wanted this team launched? The, the there were there were challenges in every step of the way, finding a practice facility. Uh, as you mentioned already, getting the equipment across the border, getting our deal done with the Air Canada Center, uh, making sure we had not just a logo design, but uniforms manufactured. Our first preseason game ever was mm-hmm. in San Jose against the uh, against the Sabercat. Yep. And our uniforms were delivered there. We didn't travel to San Jose with uniforms. Wow. <laughs> so you can just imagine getting there and not having you know, not having uniforms would have been, you know, we would have looked like, we would have looked like one of the opening scenes of dodgeball, yeah. right? Where they, you know, like it just, right? Now, yeah. fortunately, that, nev- that never became a story because the uniforms arrived and, and there we were. But that was the first time I had the opportunity that they were literally delivered the day before the game to the arena in San Francisco. Wow. Wow. Um, what was it, what was it like the, the, the initial reception from guys from, from, you know, the one, the different companies that you went to, to try to get some advertising for, I mean, was it obviously, would it help that you were in the Rogers family, uh, when it came to using that as a, as a, as a plus for them joining and advertising for the team or what was their, what was the initial reaction from across the city? Uh, the city was, the city was warm to it. They weren't, uh, as far as advertising and finding advertising slots, look, everyone wanted to take their pound of flesh from us. They, they, the downside was that they figured we were because we were funded by Rogers that mm-hmm. that we would spend anything on advertising, and that just, you know, of course, wasn't the case. We yeah. we had a budget just like everyone else did, but uh, but for the most part, the reception that we had was was warm around the city. That's good. And when it yeah. came to negotiating players, because at the time. Uh, free agency was just a, was about to become a very brand new thing in the Arena Football League. Um, mm-hmm. if, for people to remember that you know the 2000 season almost did not occur because of the you know because of the issue with the uh, with the different things that, that were happening back then you know collective bargaining agreement etc. Any and you don't have to mention the names if you don't want to, but any particular player who happened to ask the the, the team saying you know what I'm worth this much you need to pay me this much. Did you have any players like that where you were like, we, we want him to play for us, but, or did at one point it was like, no, we can't pay a player this amount of money that he wants to play for us. The, the hardest one or the only one that really sticks out in my mind was with Charlie Davidson, who, uh, you know, ended up, uh, of course, staying from new England over here. Uh, everyone else was, was not as, was not as, as difficult. Um, but Char Charlie was a difficult one. And I say that with, you know, him and I still being friends, to this day, but I will tell you with respect to recruiting players, it was hardest in year one. We were brand new. Canada was new, that sort of thing. Once these guys, and I will tell you this group, this 2001 team, when they got here to Toronto and saw what was here for them in this city, how they were treated, I at least like to believe by me and by management, by the organization on uh, how multicultural we are here. Yes. uh, How, warmly received they were at uh at, at the stadium at the blue jay you know at the blue jay games at uh at restaurants and bars by the the major league baseball athletic training staff who they they got to take advantage of it made our recruiting effort in year two 
so much easier because these these guys said, look, I've been there. This is the best. Forget this being another option for you. This is the best place you could go. And I can't tell you how many times during that second season, this is why I'm disappointed that we didn't continue beyond that. How many players from other teams that would come up to me uh, on walkthrough days or before a game and say, hey, you know, Mr. Godfrey, I would love to come here and play next year. That's nice. That's actually, that's revisionist history, eh? I obviously, I too wish the, the team had lasted beyond 2003, and we'll have to hear a little bit more about that too. Now, also, for many don't know, and, and this is where I think it may have been a, a, a hindrance to the team, and you can explain if it was or if it wasn't, um, is that at the time, obviously, being associated with Rodgers, it's funny, you, 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 uh, your TV contract was with, at the time, it was called CTV Sportsnet. It wasn't changed. It wasn't Rogers at the time. When they had, Rogers hadn't bought it yet, and CTV hadn't bought it to TSN up here. Um, what was it like trying to convince them to put games on? And when they did, they were only regionalized. Um, was that a hindrance to the team to, to let the rest of Canada know that the team did exist? Well, at the at the time, even though it was called CTV Sportsnet, Rogers owned, I believe, twenty two and a half percent of them, and had the right of first option on them. Oh, did not know that. Okay, at at the time, so uh, it was part of the whole package of Rogers buying in that they would have CTV Sportsnet do the do the games. So, uh, so that was not a was not a difficult was not a difficult uh, thing. The the more difficult thing was just trying to get them to do pregame shows, postgame shows, dedicate time to it on, on, uh, you know, their, their nightly sports news shows, yeah. that sort of thing. That was really the tough battle. Okay. Do you, you, and, don't and, find, and, and, you don't find being, 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 cause obviously now, uh, when it comes to sports nets, you know, they're, they're so, they are regionalized. And even today you look at how many channels, not only Sportsnet has, but also TSN has here in Canada. Um, but at that time, it was slightly different. You know, you guys, you know, the Phantoms seemed to be stuck on on Sportsnet East only. Mm-hmm. And yeah. at the time, uh, sports packages were not what they are today. So you would only mm-hmm. have a particular region that would see the team play. Do you think not uh, being, I, I, you know, quote unquote stuck, it's funny to say that on a TV contract, but stuck on only on, on the uh, East regional channel, do you think that hurt the team itself and getting, as I said, getting the, the word out that the team did exist for the rest of Canada? Yeah, a little, a little, but, but not, uh, that wasn't the fatal blow by any, by any stretch, but yeah, yeah, a little. And we also lived in a, in an age at that time where things were so much different, meaning this, that in those days, the broadcaster would tell you when you're going to be on. Ah, okay. Now, and it's not that it's entirely different now, but now the there is such a with with Netflix and Disney Plus and Apple TV, there is such a premium placed on live events because everything else you can watch on demand. That that now the the teams and the leagues have far more say of of how it goes and where it goes and how it's distributed and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And it's just we were just not in that that age that we are in now. I remember uh, the main uh, play-by-play guy was Jamie Campbell. He, he was a yeah. he's, he's still a very big guy over at Sportsnet. I, I, obviously, it's funny. I, I kind of for, I've forgotten who his play his play-by-play uh, his uh, color guy was. I forgotten off the top of my head, but uh, Leaf. Um, his name was Leaf. Leaf. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I will. Leif Pedersen. There you go, Leif Pedersen. You are correct, sir. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, the, the broadcast seemed to go pretty well. I mean, considering, as I said, it's, it's a new sport to Canada, uh, trying to introduce it and explain the rules to everybody. But it, I think it went quite well considering. Um, were there yeah. any things that you wish besides the pre- and post-game stuff that they'd done that you wish that they had done differently on the broadcasts? Um, look, I, I wish they would have. I, I wish they would have spent more time, uh, you know, more time explaining the sport, highlighting the personalities of our players. Look, I, I, I'm a firm believer that uh, there are very few Chicago Cubs and New York Yankees or Dallas Cowboys and Green Bay Packers. Everyone else has to work at it. And in working at it, uh, your team is so much more than, than just your logo and your team colors right. and that sort of thing. It's really the collection of players that you have. And we really had a great collection of players, of guys who were very marketable, of stories to tell, whether it was, you know, whether it was Ty Law or Kerry Brown mm-hmm. or Jermaine Younger or Pat O'Hara or Charlie Davidson. Yeah, you know, they, I think we had a we had a good story to tell. But uh, but look, that's not the way they wanted to to go about and do the broadcast. And uh, you know, now it's it's easy to say this uh, all those years later. Yeah. Now, and to be fair too, and I've I've said this, and I've been a very I've been very strong about the, what I'm feeling is that I feel that the arena football. So I don't think it was just Sportsnet itself, Rob. I think it was the Arena Football League in general. One thing that they sorely lacked in their history was promoting their stars. So I don't think yeah. it wasn't necessarily Sportsnet's fault also because they didn't want to do it, but the league itself. Because even mm-hmm. when they were on NBC, the exact same thing. It was about maybe about one or two guys. It wasn't necessarily about the, you know. So it was, it was a, I think, a downfall itself from, from their headquarters also <coughs> to me that, that, yeah, that, 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 that I, they faltered on. And I'll, I'll tell you, the NBC, the NBC deal was uh, a deal that uh, on the on the legal committee I was the only one who voted against the NBC. Wow. Uh, I think uh, my colleagues around the league were so seduced by the three letters NBC mm-hmm. that that any way they wanted to put us on the air it felt like a win. It was like being asked to the dance by the hottest girl in school kind of thing. Yeah. And I think we could have held out not for more money. It wasn't about more money, but hold them to account on doing things like that on giving us pregame shows on building personalities uh, it, that's that's what would have built this and and kept it kept it longer than than certainly it has been did the teams actually come away with something from from the nbc contract any monetary value at all because obviously today no uh, no because it, it's it, so it's not like it's uh, nbc would pay a portion of it and then the league would pay a portion of the broadcast the production of the broadcast and then I guess mm-hmm. splitting of the of the ad revenues. That's right. And I knew that was a bad, that was a, that was a bad, having my experience at Rogers. I knew that was a bad deal from the very get go. Right. If you're an advertiser, if you're Procter and Gamble, and you want to advertise on NBC, then they're going to sell you a whole bunch of packages, and they're going to value the stuff that they've got to split at almost nothing. Yeah. There was uh, no I- chance of ever making money on that deal. Yeah. How were the um, how did the, the 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 sports fans in Toronto take to this? I mean, I said we're not we have there's no major announcement yet. Um, actually, no, we'll, we'll get to that when we talk about the announcement itself. I, I'm jumping ahead. Um, you, you obviously October's coming up. October 17th is the big launch date. Um, you, you seem to get some pretty good press from what I've seen from from the the big mm-hmm. papers in Canada and especially in Toronto too. But I do know that uh, the Canadian press did cover the story across, I think, mm-hmm. most of the newspapers in Canada. 
Um, how are you feeling that day of the actual announcement? You have, obviously, the commissioner who's coming up there uh, to with the announcement itself. You're going to be announcing the team name, et cetera. Uh, were you, uh, is it fair to say you were nervous that day of the announcement or, or, or was it something else? No, we knew we would get, uh, we'd get good coverage. Uh, look, Rogers brought their, their hat behind it. I had had, uh, family that had been around the media for, for a long, long time. So I knew we were going to get, uh, get good coverage on it. So that was, that was truly the, the day that worried me the least. Mm-hmm. It was, it was everything else after that. It was, <laughs> <laughs> making sure that you know that we put a team on the field that our marketing was in place that we had uniforms that we had uh that we didn't go out and embarrass ourselves uh after that that we didn't have an empty stand mm-hmm. those sorts of things yeah and it's funny you, you mentioned what i was going to ask you uh how how long did it take for the team to get their first call about season tickets they, they happened that, that day that we uh that we announced uh, unfortunately they didn't happen in quite the number we thought that we thought that they would. And, mm-hmm. um, look, this is what I'm about to tell you is not, not an excuse or, or pointing finger, right. but I, the way we were set up were that was that the ticketing staff for the Toronto blue Jays were going to manage ticket sales for the Phantom. The mm-hmm. truth of the matter is that the blue Jays weren't set up to do that at all. I remember, uh, after being at the Phantoms, I walked into the Jays and, came to, to realize that from 1977 through 2002, the Blue Jays never once made a single solitary outbound telephone call to sell a ticket, ever. Wow. They just turned on the phones and the phones rang. And as the team got better into the early 90s, the phone rang more. And after the strike of 94 uh, and the Raptors coming into the market and the Blue Jays performing uh, less well, that the phone rang less and no one did anything about it. So the idea that that these these folks uh, who worked for the Jays ticketing department were going to all of a sudden do something they've never done, which is pick up a phone and do outbound sales, uh, whether it's for arena football or even for their own product, was an error in judgment. Yeah, it sounds like something that, that was very frustrating to you because uh, it's just a matter of you weren't able to, you know, when it came to uh, getting uh, school kids in there or getting groups or et cetera, et cetera, they would have to come to you rather than it That's being right. pitched to them. That's right. Like, you know, like imagine, imagine, you know, being sick and going to the hospital and someone comes out and says, oh, I'm, you know, I'm Dr. Smith. I'm here to look after you. And it's not until, you know, uh, three weeks after seeing the first time you see Dr. Smith and relying on all their advice and everything that you realize, Dr. Smith never went to medical school. He just calls himself Dr. Smith. So <laughs> that's, that's, that's kind of what it was like. Like you assume that the, sales staff for a major league baseball team would be equipped to do sales, outbound sales. And the truth of the matter was that the, the folks who worked there were simply order takers, right? They, they, they were no different than, than the people answering the phone at Pizza Pizza. They were there to answer the phone and take orders. And if it rang a lot, they would take a lot of orders. And if it rang less, they would take fewer orders. Yeah. And if I'm not mistaken, I, I can't even, I can't remember myself, but I probably was within the first day or couple of days for myself calling the Phantoms to get my season tickets. And I didn't care if I lived in Montreal. Yeah. Because, well, you were, you were one of our first. Yeah. Because I wanted to, I was proud to have an Arena Football League team in Canada. We'd had a, 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 a small history of the, of the league in Canada. And I said, I need to support my Canadian team in Canada. And that's, and I did for the, for, you know, for both years. So it's whether I couldn't, even though I couldn't come to all the games. Um, mm-hmm. 
Let, let's let's talk about your your first season. Uh, I mean, as you said, uh, you show up in <laughs> you show up in San Jose for your, you know for your first preseason game. You're just getting your your uniforms. Um, walk, walk us through that. And I would I would consider that 2001 was a very successful season for the Toronto Phantoms, even though you were uh, you know you you made it within one wow uh, within a touchdown of making it to the Arena Bowl your first season. Mm-hmm. So. T- tell us what your thoughts were on that first season as as an owner of a of a football team. The first, look, the first season was was a, was a big high. It was look, we made the playoffs, we won our division. Uh, we thought wrongfully so. Well, we can only go up for here, from here. If you would have asked me at the end of that first season, how is this going to turn out? Twelve months down the road, twenty four months, thirty six months. I would have never guessed in a million years that there wouldn't be a twenty four months or thirty six mm-hmm. months. That first season was, uh, you know, it wasn't without its troubles. Like we, we struggled at quarterback. We struggled to find our way. Stout struggled as a first time uh, head coach. And, uh, so there, there were struggles along the way, but, but in the end, this team pulled together and really played like, uh, played like a team. And we were really within, uh, within, as I say, like a, a few seconds of making it to the arena bowl. Were you frustrated about how, uh, obviously, with the first game, you have your, your, your people who are curious to know about the team. You drew, what was it, announced just over 10,000. But, you know, for the, for the two years itself, you, you, you grew just about 7,000 itself. And obviously, we saw some stuff, I think, even after the first game versus Buffalo, um, you know, because that, that really was the first test itself. You really can't gauge a crowd based on a preseason game versus New York mm-hmm. earlier. But, um how frustrated were you about the about the crowds itself? It, what, did it go to what you were saying before about uh, the Blue Jays ticketing services, or was it a, a little bit of more than that? Look, that that was that was a big part of it. At the at the end of the day, it's got to rest on on my shoulders. I right. was the I was the CEO, and I'd love to be able to you know get away with pointing the finger elsewhere. The truth of it is, looking back now and having the experience I have now. Uh, we truly didn't know what the heck we were doing on the ticket sales side. And we thought that, that uh, we could uh, fill that gap of knowledge or experience or expertise uh, with the folks at the Jays. And that just, just wasn't so. So, but, but at the end of the day, I, I can't, you know, I can't point my finger at, uh, at anyone, but the guy in the mirror. You were happy though. I mean, with the first year, I mean, obviously you're going to, it's a new sport, Obviously, we know, as you and I both know, the Argos at the time were not doing that well either. And that's a story I want to ask you about in a couple of minutes here. Um, I, I, you were, were you happy, though, with the numbers despite the issues that you were having? I mean, you, you just said you were having close, very close to anywhere between seven and a half to 8,000 per game. I'd say we were satisfied. I, I, I think we were far from happy yet. We, we knew that there was something missing in our formula to get drive more fans in. And we just didn't have the have the answer. Mm-hmm. As an as an aside, I just want to let you know I probably have about five or ten minutes. Oh boy! If that's, if that's okay, or uh, we can always continue it later too. I'm happy to continue it later yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah, because uh, right because I, I don't want to I don't want to cut you off, but I also I've got oh, something at four thirty that I got to prepare for. So hopefully this oh, part I get you it. can no, no, edit, I understand. edit we'll, out. It will go as far as we can, and then we'll. We'll, we'll uh, yeah, if we have to re- reschedule, uh, whether it be for day or for another evening, because I, I, I'm back to work tomorrow. Um, okay. So um, let me write this down. When, when did you, my pen, <laughs> pen, not around. 
Uh, what is it? Uh, just after, okay, uh, an hour. Just after 59 minutes. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, obviously you had a, a very good season that you're on the field. I mean, you, you, which was a plus, you would think that Buffalo would have been your natural rival when in essence, it ended up being the New York dragons. Um, yeah. it, it seemed that these, you know, you two teams would go at it. They'd be exciting games, you know, from the very first game itself, you know, you knocked off New York on their home opener and their mm-hmm. inaugural game, and you get to play them throughout the year. Um, uh, I'm sure you were happy to, to actually get a natural rival at that time, considering that you were the only team in Canada. Yeah, look, it, 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 movies are always better when there's a good guy and a villain. <laughs> and so, so to, have, to have them there was great. Uh, I, I think that that was really a function. Of, you know, our rivalry was really a function of Aaron Garcia. Uh, and he was he was so good that he made for it's funny that he was, you know, small in stature, but he made for a great Goliath for us uh, and, and something something really to, to, to gun at kind of thing. Ah, so glad to get out of that dang time travel machine. Where'd you go? I went back to the 80s to grab some of that good, good sports merch from my favorite defunct franchises. I spent my life savings on that machine. You bought a time travel machine to buy sports merchandise? Yeah, gladly. You know you could have gone to 503 Sports, right? The the website? Uh, yeah, no, I didn't think of that at all. Yeah, they sell all sorts of throwback sports merch from leagues like the World Football League, XFL, UFL, and the Arena Football League, several others. Uh, oh, shoot. Yeah, they sell hats, shirts, even custom jerseys from all sorts of vintage sports teams. Oh, man, I spent, like, a lot of money on that time travel machine. Well, look, listeners of AFL Rewind get 10% off their first order by using the promo code ARENAFAN at checkout. That might help you out. Yeah, it does. Go on over to 503-sports.com and, and get your merch today. Do you know anyone who wants to buy, like, a overpriced time travel machine? No, no, sorry, I, I don't. Then we can move on to 2002, and 2002 was a little bit different, not necessarily in the sports world, but overall because of what occurred in September of 2001. Um, 2002 for the Arena Football League brought in a, a minor change where, and this is what I wanted to ask you about, is where I can, the league was, adopted a pro-U.S. stance, obviously, which I understand, with by modifying their league logo. And what I wanted to ask you about was, with the Phantoms being the only Canadian team, was something proposed to the league execs to say, listen, like, like Major League Baseball does now, as an example, is there a way that we can promote and, and say we are pro-Canada and we're, we're, we're standing behind Canada instead of us wearing a logo on the back of our helmet that has an, uh, an American flag on it? You know, so the, any, any of that stuff, uh, had to come from us to remind them along the way that we were uh, the only Canadian franchise to remind them that they had to think about more than just the United States, that they had to think about Canada in this. And, and we saw that with the way that uh, that they dealt with things like the, the salute to 9-11, mm-hmm. uh, which happened early in the, in the season yeah. for 2002, of course, uh, as well as, uh, as well as the logo, uh, uh, along with along with anything else, even down to the NBC deal, right? Because the whole idea of having a broadcast region uh, makes sense if you're the 
Buffalo Destroyers, or it makes sense if you're the New Jersey Gladiators or the Orlando Predators. Uh, to, to limit ourselves the way Canada is set up, as you know, with the with the various sports networks, to just the, the you know the region surrounding Toronto, or even if it was just Ontario, doesn't make sense in the context of the way our uh, our stuff operates, where our country and media operates, that we should have the, the region that's coast to coast, unless and until uh, another Canadian team comes in. So any of that stuff always came was always uh, what I'll call one directional. It was from us to them. So something uh, a rule would be put in place, whether it be a league bylaw or a, or just a policy change or a logo change, where we'd have to remind them, guys, this may not work. For us, I, I I never really had a problem with the the whole logo part. Okay. Um, uh, just from the perspective, look, it's a predominantly American league. The head sure. office is in is in the U.S. Um, as well as the fact that I, I seem to find in Canada, in this great country that we live in, that there seems to be. Uh, Tolerance for everything. If anyone said anything negative about any race, religion, or sexual orientation, they get tremendous pushback. Mm-hmm. As they should, by the way. As they should. As they should. But for some reason in our country, which I don't understand, have never understood, and maybe this is the, the, the product of me having half my family being American and having three American daughters uh, is that I've never understood in our country that when someone says some something anti-American, that somehow that flies right. in our country. And that if, if we were to substitute uh, the word American in front of, you know, after anti, with anti-anything, anti-any religion, anti-any race, anti-any sexual orientation, all of a sudden you'd get tremendous pushback. So I've always sort of bucked against that and never understood that. I, I fully get that. The, the league was predominantly American. In fact, it was entirely American before we came along. All our players were American. So the logo issue never really, really bothered me. When it came time to saluting uh, uh, you know, the, those who died and, and those who uh, were the first responders in 9-11, it was important to me that there was a Canadian angle to it because that, you know, that's, that's sort of the constituency we serve. Right. So um, although none of that stuff ever particularly bothered me, and probably that's also because by that time, by the time we got to 2002, I was fortunate enough to have the Major League Baseball view of things. And we had been through, uh, so I had two positions at the time, president of the Phantoms and senior VP of the the Blue Jays. And so I, I, I had the opportunity to see how Major League Baseball dealt with things. And look, Quite often they dealt with things as an American-only focus also, and the Blue Jays had to go back to Major League Baseball and say, well, this is how we should deal with Canada. And that happened on everything from how we properly honor and recognize 9-11 mm-hmm. to what logos we wear on July 4th or July 1st, in, mm-hmm. in our case, uh, to how merchandise is sold without, you know, two Canadians without duty right. kind of thing. So. So it wasn't unusual to me, and I, I, to me, it wasn't. It didn't come without uh, without my understanding, because I, I get how uh, how do you expect uh, folks in a league office who've only been dealing with American teams to all of a sudden be sensitive to a completely different country? Right, right. And I get that. And it's, for me, it's 
I guess for me being on the fan side of it, Robbie, I, I, I was I wasn't happy because I felt that I understand your point, but I felt as a fan and being a Canadian fan, I felt that we were being slighted, and, and that mm-hmm. that was just my opinion. But I mean, it's I, I felt that like you. It, we were, I was hoping that they would understand that you're now in two countries. And it did take Major League Baseball a little bit longer to, to recognize mm-hmm. that and to finally get that right. Um, but and, th- and, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. That's your right as a fan. And I think that's where the responsibility, to be quite honest with you, rests on the shoulders of the Canadian franchises, no matter what league we're talking about, whether it's baseball or, or arena football or the NBA, or like the NHL is a bit different because there's so many more Canadian exactly. teams. But, but, but it rests on the franchise to, re, to, uh, to, to speak up. Look, I firmly believe, I, I, I have been given the greatest honor around, which is to be called a team owner, which, you know, I was a partial owner of the Phantoms. Right. And it was, a, it was a great honor and something I'll, I'll treasure to the day I die. At the very same time, I've long held the belief that sports teams are not owned by individuals and they're not owned by corporations, that the truest matter is that a sports team is a public trust. And so, Tim, when you say as a fan that you felt that uh, as, a, as a fan and more particularly as a, specifically as a Canadian fan, you felt slighted in this, of course that's your right to be slighted. And your eyes should turn to less the league who... Why should they know better right. to the Canadian franchise or the, in the, depending on which league we're talking about, in this case, Arena Football League, Canadian franchise to behave in a way that is understanding the fact that nobody owns the team, that it's a public trust and right. that they should speak out on your behalf. Mm-hmm. And it's, I don't look at it as, as someone who's Jewish. Right. I, don't, I don't look at it any different than around Christmas time when I go into a store or and and I check out and they say Merry Christmas. I don't think, oh gosh, why don't they know I'm Jewish or why can't they say something more politically correct? Right. I get it. I get it. Listen, uh, being a being a Jewish Canadian, I'm not one of the majority. The majority are people who celebrate Christmas. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I always try to look at the intent, the intent behind it. And the intent behind it isn't isn't malicious, whether it's in wishing us. Uh, Merry Christmas when they could be saying something else. And it's, I, I did, never believed it was uh, the intent behind what the leagues are doing, whether it's arena football or major league baseball was um, malicious or intended to slight us. And that's yeah. really where you got to look to the, the Canadian franchises to stand up for the, the fans like, like Tim Capper, yeah. right? It's to say, wait a sec, wait a sec. We serve a different constituency here. And that, that our, as much as we are alike, there are many ways that we're different too. And uh, that's up to the, the franchise to, to step forward and say to the league, you have to honor that. Yeah. And if I remember correctly, and guy, uh, you know, as, as we've been saying, it's, it's been almost 20 years since the inaugural kickoff of the Phantoms. Um, I, I remember I, I could have, I thought I mentioned, I may have contacted you and, and we talked about it. And also I think we may have, I may have mentioned, I may have contacted the league about it, but it's been so long. I don't remember if if that was you know if both of that was done so but I just at least want I did notice though and I don't know if it was on purpose or the way that you as a as a team wanted to take uh, to to recognize it or, or to to deal with it yourselves is that every all the other teams in 2002 had that uh, that stars and stripes logo on their mm-hmm. um, uh, media guides the Phantoms did not so 
Yeah. Maybe that was your way of, I don't know. As I said, it's, it's just, it was just a, a something that I did notice though. Yeah. Look, it, it, it was, I'm trying to remember back to, it was most likely intentional because at the very same time, uh, as I had the opportunity or good fortune to deal with a lot of the blue Jay stuff of how we dealt with honoring nine 11 and right. sort of the countries we recognize. And so if you look at the, the difference in seasons, uh, look, the, the arena football league season in 2001 ended in August, we had September 11th happen after the season, after the season ended. And, uh, and then, and then baseball continued. So we had to figure out how we were going to honor, honor things in baseball before we had the opportunity to figure out how we were going to honor it in arena football. Right. And we did it through, um, we, we did a number of things. We did it through the prominent placement of uh, Canadian flags rather than, than American flags. But at the very same time, we, we found the way to, to honor America, who had really suffered you know, its, its biggest loss on domestic soil ever. Right. So uh, for us, it was a balancing act. And, and I wish I could speak specifically to the media guy, but I can tell you that it was probably... Uh, intentional when I think back to all the all the other things that I had the the opportunity to be involved in and how we you know how we proceeded from September 11th 2001 into our 2002 season right um, 2002 on the field though uh, not as good as 2001 the team did struggle uh, ended up being five and nine on the season uh, didn't qualify for the playoffs mm-hmm. also did hurt too I mean your last two games were were, were an overtime. Uh, to New Jersey and you know, losing the home finale uh, to uh, to New York. Um, the also the other difference that I noticed too for the fandoms is that there was a slight modification in the actual home games themselves. It seemed that maybe three quarters of them were actually now on a Thursday nights rather than the Thursday slash Friday nights as they were in two thousand one. Um, it, was it a matter of we we're talking about it before about you know the Phantoms possibly being number four on the chart when it comes to getting dates? Were you, was it something that you guys were not in control with when it came to actually changing the the, the dates that the games were played on? No, no, no. We, we look, we were largely in control of it. What okay. it what it what it really was, and we had talked earlier about ticket sales and whether there was a a pointing of the finger to the Blue Jay sales staff. Uh, and uh, I, I said earlier, as I'll say again, there. I think a lot of it falls on uh, my personal deficiency as a as a chief executive, right. as a president, and it was it was my own failings uh, in that. And we were really just trying to figure out what worked, right? Was you know were we not drawing as many fans as we hoped because we were on weekends in the summer and people wanted to go up to the cottage, and that went into a lot of what we were, a lot of what we were thinking. Uh, do we need to be? Do we need to own a night of the week the way the NFL owns Sunday, mm-hmm. uh, the way the Leafs in Toronto have historically owned Saturday, yep. uh, that kind of thing? Uh, and I think that it was just an attempt to to figure out how can we how can we own something. So it was it was experimenting with with the night of the you know, night of the week. Right, of exactly. Okay, I understand. Um, yeah, because I was, I was looking here in, compared to 2001, you uh, you had uh, six of your home games on Thursdays in 2002. So um, just, mm-hmm. to, just to point it out uh, for those who are, who are listening. Yeah, yeah. No, I, that part, I, that part I remember uh, very well. I, you know, I, 
Tim, the biggest disappointment in speaking to you is that I feel like I'm going to have to go back and get myself, get my memory checked. Um, <laughs> because there's, there's, a, there's a whole bunch of things that I don't remember, uh, given that it's 20 years ago. But yeah, exactly, yeah. that one I certainly, I do remember that, uh, that we were looking to just see if we could own a particular night of the week. We realized that, uh, that Torontonians and, 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 and Canadians like to, you know, escape for the weekend up north. Right. And uh, we were just trying to own a night of the week. It I understand. Was, it was I nothing more than that. Now, I remember seeing you uh, after that overtime loss to um, to uh, to New York. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I referenced this earlier. And I remember that day you were you were quite emotional. And I, maybe it's because of the loss, because <laughs> the season was over, etc. But I, was there more to it? Because as we found out, you know, the, the team did not return in 2003. Um, first, my, my question to you is, is that, uh, did you know at that home game that that was possibly the last time the Phantoms would play in Toronto or and if not, how close was the team, uh, to coming back in 2003? I did not know at that time. Mm-hmm. I did, I did, I did not know at that time that it was the, that it was the end because I, I do remember very specifically the decision to cease operations as a team didn't come until September. Mm-hmm. So so uh, and, and it was literally uh, maybe a day or two before it got announced publicly. Right. Uh, and, and look, had had things happened a decade later or two decades later, the funny thing is, if it was a couple million bucks a year in operating losses, that is that's not even a bad baseball player's contract. Right. Two million bucks. Right. So the decision may have been a may have been a lot different. I think. Uh, what really hurt was was the NFL not picking up their option and, right. and Rogers' communication saying, "Well, why are we doing this?" And then, in many ways, Rogers was funding losses for some of the other partners. So, had Rogers owned a hundred percent of it, I think things would have been different. But looking back to that last game on on on, on me being uh, emotional about the about the whole thing, I think it was just that. Coming out of 2001 and, and having a, a very good first season and thinking, you know, you always make the mistake of thinking you can only go up from here. Right. And we thought like, wow, this is our first season. We did this the first season. We can only go up. And the truth of the matter is that the, the, the line between winning and losing is so fine. And 2002 was a year of such such great disappointment in, in so many uh, in so many ways that uh, it was just sort of the end, you know, it was, it was the end of, uh, of just a very frustrating season. Right. And, you know, when you know you're better than that, we were, I still believe we were better than five and, five and nine, right? So it was just, it was just so disappointing uh, from, you know, in that respect that right. I thought we were just, just better than that. Like we didn't feel that there was a team that, uh, oh, that team is so much better than us. We we're thinking like, wow, we kind of got jobbed a few times, right? Which people only focus on the times where you feel like you got had. No one feel, no one focuses on the time where like, wow, that bounce went our way. We got lucky, right? So, yep, yep. <laughs> you know, who, who knows? Maybe instead of being five and nine, it could have been three and eleven. Oh, but yeah. uh, but we really did think we were better than that. Um, before you, before you found out, had you guys already started to the process of coming back in 2003 or did rumblings happen? As you said, it's happened in September when it, when it, when the, when the, uh, when the ball was dropped, um, was there any, any point at, at that you thought you were coming back in 2003? 
Yeah, look, we were we were planning towards 2003. We knew we had to make some some changes. Uh, there were a lot of, there were a lot of people who were pressuring me to make changes at the head coaching position, um, which just I can tell you right now would not have been my style to do that. I had no plans in in firing Mark Stout. Right. Um, uh, look, I know we probably had to make some some changes. Most notably at uh, at quarterback, we may have had to say goodbye to some guys who were getting long in the tooth in both. Um, in both Charlie Davidson and uh, and and Kerry Brown, right? But uh, so we knew that there were some changes ahead. But I was I was really buoyed by the fact that our reputation as a franchise around the league was so good from a player perspective. Yeah, as I told you earlier, that that there were so many players that came up to us and said said you know I I really want to play there next year kind of thing that that, you know, I thought we were going to have an easy time signing players. So we really did begin the plans for 2003. It was just, uh, just a shame we never got there. Yeah. And it's a, it's a shame. There were so many things. It's just the, the timing of the franchise, um, that the, the Blue Jay staff weren't in a position to help us in a way that we thought we were. Uh, I wish I wasn't so young and stupid uh, at the time or, and, and and arrogant it's amazing what gray hair does to you <laughs> you know so that you you know you learn from experience and that sort of thing so you know i wish so many different things because i i i believe that the phantoms could have had a, a better and longer run than we did um real quickly we're gonna i want to go back here for just a couple of seconds i know you you talked about the nbc deal and how you uh, you had voted against it. Obviously, the Phantoms were never a part of the NBC deal itself because it started off in 2003. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. At the time the team was around, it was it was the, the TNN days, and TNN was was a very popular place to watch arena football, especially with Eli Gold. He knew how to call a game. Mm-hmm. Um, did it did it frustrate you as a uh, as an ownership group that you weren't on U.S. national television more? Because the only two times you were on TV on TNN was the playoffs in 2001. No, it didn't really frustrate me. I, I, I'll tell you to to make a, a local team work, to make money on it, to be successful, to be one of the enduring franchises. You really have to plant the seeds and water those seeds in your in your own backyard. Yeah. So the thing, the idea of being on TNN, TNN uh, south of the border, is really only something that that feeds the ego. It doesn't feed. Uh, it doesn't feed mouths, okay. right? It doesn't 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 pay for player salaries or uh, give us anything other than just sort of a, a you know a chest filled with pride kind right. of thing. So also, also didn't really, help too I, that we, TNN was TNN wasn't in Canada. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And by the way, if you were running TNN, like you're, don't change a thing about who you are, where you were born, where you were raised. If all of a sudden you were transported and you were running TNN, would you have ever televised the Phantoms game? Probably not, yeah. right? Look, the, the, the Toronto Raptors up until, and we'll see what happens if they ever get back to, to playing basketball this year, but the Toronto Raptors always played the first playoff game on Saturday at noon, yeah. Yeah. right? Why? Because it's, it's, the, it's the least valuable time slot for US TV. And really, who, who wants to watch the Toronto team anywhere in the u.s right and i, and I get it yeah. right look if we were there we we wouldn't do anything different no i i fully get it i fully get it um uh, but when the team was coming when you guys were, were starting the process to bring the team to canada um there seemed to be a problem between the cfl and the arena football league 
And it didn't just start in, you know, when you guys were starting to get your team. It dated back to when, um, when the, uh, the, uh, a potential ownership group in Ottawa in 97 wanted to play a game, an exhibition game in Ottawa at the Civic Center. And uh, they were able to push them out of the Civic Center because of they were afraid of what was going to happen to the to the Rough Riders, and they pushed them to a smaller arena in uh, in Gatineau, Quebec. Um, now it seemed to be the exact same thing was occurring to you guys when you're wanting to after you know the rumors had come out that you were going to be bringing the team to Canada. What is with the CFL and the Arena Football League not getting along? You know, look at. The CFL is uh, the CFL was just like, protective over their own territory. They they had uh, long felt that their their success as a league depended on being you know was dependent on all, being the only football product around. Uh, I don't I look I don't I don't believe that's the case for the CFL. If I can speak on you know as far as my opinion on on the CFL, sure. I think. The CFL is a great product and a wonderful product in certain markets. And we, we, found, we found out, like we know that the CFL is a great market in, uh, in Saskatchewan. It's a great market in Edmonton and Calgary. It's a great market in Winnipeg. It's a great market in Hamilton, Montreal, right? Like it's become, I guess, at McGill Stadium. Is that where they play McGill Stadium? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, at, at a, so they've, they've become a great product there. In Toronto, especially in the Rogers Center, what was the Skydome, they have not been a great product. They were never a great product in Ottawa. And so I understand their defensive position, but whether Arena Football League came in or not, or whether uh, the NFL came into Toronto, it wasn't going to change the prospects of, of the CFL in those particular cities. I think what made it worse for us is that John Tory who at the time was not the mayor of Toronto, he was a senior executive by Ro- at Rogers, kind of felt betrayed by, uh, by you know, sort of the higher-ups at Rogers, by the people who were above him. There weren't many people above him at, at Rogers, but, but Ted Rogers was certainly one of them, right. that he felt sort of betrayed that here John was the commissioner of the CFL, and now Rogers, who paid his, you know, who signed his paycheck, was going out and bringing in a competing product. So... I know John felt uh, felt a little had by that, and I, you know, as I, as I think I've said before, I'm not sure uh, my personal relationship with John, who, which has always been good, has ever really recovered from that that one thing. The idea of me bringing Arena Football to Toronto and him being the the CFL uh, commissioner, we found ourselves on opposite ends of things, and. Okay. Uh, you know, as I've said before, John's a John's a decent guy. We just ended up at, at the opposite side of the the table from one another. Okay, um, it's as I said, it always seemed to be whenever the Arena League would rear its head, positive. Mm-hmm. You know, you, even if they were just rumors, it just seemed to be, which I understand. But you know, it's the it's the market itself. I guess the you know it's completely different now, considering who owns the the, the Argos. But I don't know if that yeah. would be the same thing as it were today if the Arena, Arena Football League were still around and the team was thinking of coming to Canada. Um, yeah. I, 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 yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure. So sure it would be other than other than just control of the venues, right? But yeah, like I, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure it would be that uh, it would be as big of an issue now. But uh, listen, it's that's that's sort of what happens when you have. Uh, a product that you feel is is on fragile ground. Right. You would never see 
um, Major League Baseball, which operates in the summer, the same time as arena football, come in and say, well, we don't want arena football. You would never see, uh, you would never see whether it's hockey or, or basketball do that. Right. right. It's because they felt they were on fragile ground. And in some markets, Toronto and Ottawa included, they were and continue to be on fragile ground. Yeah. Um, Rob, you, obviously, we know after the Phantoms left, you, you moved on to, to bigger and better things. But for you, even 20 years down the line, what, are, what, are you, what stands out to you the most? The first thing, when you think of the Toronto Phantoms and after all the stuff that you went through, what, what's the one thing that you're going to remember the most? Oh, there's probably a few things. Uh, <laughs> certainly the chase, the, the, the chase to get the team uh, is, is something that, that sticks out in my mind earlier. We talked about going out trying to finance the purchase of this team right. and uh, Ted Rogers coming in at the last moment and the, the news leaking on the same day that Rogers bought the Blue Jays. That's one thing that will stand out. Um, my relationship with the players, with guys like, uh, and I know I've mentioned it a, a few times, but my, my relationship with Charlie Davidson, my relationship with Pat O'Hara, Ty Law, Connell Spain, uh, Kerry Brown, uh, as well as the coaches too, like Mark Stout and uh, Mark Lazarek, uh, those those sorts of things, those, those will always stand out. There's a there's a, a story that will always stand out uh, stand out for me at the beginning of the 2001 season when we had our opening game against Buffalo, and we lost that opening game. And I remember just being so down about about losing that game, and it was you know I just I just it just felt it felt like someone punched you in the in the in the throat because you you had spent all this time gearing up to this home opener and you end up losing it and we were so disappointed about losing it and I remember my father who was the president of the Blue Jays at the time and they hadn't had I'm not sure if at the time they had their opening game yet or their home opener yet they hadn't had uh, at the time and he calls me and he said Rob I know you're I know you're upset about losing this one but there'll be other games is what he said. And I'm going to tell you, it didn't do anything to soothe me. I'm like, <laughs> what the heck's he talking about? There's going to be other games. We just lost our owner. You know, like, even though it was my dad, I was like, screw this guy. We just, there's going to be other games. What's he talking about? And then fast forward, I don't know what it was, whether it was a week or five or six days, I'm sitting with him at a Blue Jay game. Yeah. And the Jays are leading going into the ninth inning, and Billy Koch comes on to save the game, and he starts blowing the save. Yeah. And now... I'm fine. Look, my team's already lost. My father is pacing back and forth in the box. And he's my father has never sworn in his entire life is finding a whole bunch of colorful words to use of what's going on here in the top of the ninth inning. And he's starting to swear. And I go up to him and I say, Dad, don't worry. There'll be other games. <laughs> and for some reason, he didn't find it half as funny as I found it. <laughs> I guess he gave you the look that you gave him a week, a week that's or right, he did. days prior. <laughs> that's right. He did. So it's, I mean, that will always stand out to me where, you know, he could have, uh, you talked about, about me being emotional about us winning and losing yeah. and, and uh, how, how hard, you know, I took losses and that sort of thing. And then I fast forward to, or flash back to that where, you know, here he was trying to soothe me and tell me that there are brighter days ahead and there are other games and don't take it so seriously. And then he's losing one of 162 baseball games. Yeah. And I see the same thing to him. And it wasn't so uh, it wasn't so funny for him. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's, to this day, that that remains uh, funny to me. And then there was, I guess, the, the last thing that, that really stands out 
is that we had lost a home game, and you could probably go back and check, but I think the home game we lost was to Oklahoma City. Okay. And I wish I could remember whether it was the first or second season. I think it was the first season we lost a home game to Oklahoma City. And it was one of those, you know, it was a game where we went home, and I think Ty Law caught like five touchdowns that game, and I think we lost. And, oh, I was, I was pissed off and went home and went to bed pissed off, woke up pissed off, that kind of thing. And in the morning, I got a call from Stout, from, from Coach Stout, and he said, oh, you better get over here. Ty Law's mother just passed away Oh boy! Um, suddenly. And so I, I went over to where, where the players had lived. And here's this guy, Ty Law, who was larger than life, who had, uh, who had a swagger about him and, you know, was sort of the life of the party and sort of had the pulse of the, pulse of the dressing room. And I walk in, and this guy who is sort of, you know, put on a pedestal, comes over to me and collapses crying in my arms. And it was sort of one of the big teaching moments of my life to say, you know, you, it's funny how pissed off you get about losing a game and you're looking, and you're like, you know what, in the, in the grand scheme of things, it's not that important. Right. Now, of course, the next week or the next time we lost, I was probably still pissed off as well. <laughs> so I'm not saying I, I'm not saying I learned that well, but, 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 it, but I will always remember that, that part of, uh, of things. It's one of the things that stand out for me. For those who stuck with the Phantoms for the two years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What, do you, what do you want to, to, to convey to them, to, to those fans, to the, which will now forever be the only team that played in, uh, that was Canada's team? Look, they were, they, were, they were awesome because the thing is we didn't just see, see the fans at, at the games. that They joined us afterwards. We had, you'll recall we had team parties afterwards yep. where the fans were all invited to show up and they showed up and they were into it. And the ones who took the time and, and of course, the, their hard-earned money out of their pocket to, to invest in us, both financially, emotionally, time-wise, they were, they were awesome. And I know that they wish and I wish that there could have been more like them because it was just so much, it was so much fun. It was such a fan-friendly game. Look, mm-hmm. uh, having had the fortune of being, being part of Major League Baseball as well, Baseball is not a sport that's conducive to going up to, at the time, Carlos Delgado or Roy Halladay and engaging them in discussion. A discussion. Forget getting an autograph, and, and we were. We were fan-friendly, and you kept footballs that went into the stands, and you got to be up close. So those, those fans were amazing, and they were passionate, and they showed up, and they, I'll tell you this, on, on Friday morning or Sunday morning, whenever we had a game, they let me know afterwards whether – you know, my email box was full on, how, you know, whether we played poorly or played well or, right. you know, if they were pissed off at sometimes things that I couldn't control, like the prices of hot dogs at, uh, at the Air Canada Centre. But, uh, but they let me know in, in big numbers, too, right, And when they were happy and sad. And, you know, I, I, I thank them for their passion because I didn't realize that, that, that they could be that passionate about, uh, about a brand-new team. It's interesting to hear how each of these teams and how each of these people deal with certain variables in bringing their, you know, bringing their teams into the league and being a part of history that is the Arena Football League. It seemed that there are a lot of ups and downs for this team, especially at the very beginning, you know, considering what this team uh, was purchased for and the reception within uh, within Toronto itself uh, and the, the hurdles that they had to, to, you know, that they had to overcome. But it, either way... Being able to hear about the franchise itself, especially for me, 
who was a season ticket holder for the Toronto Phantoms, was a very interesting listen. And uh, I really appreciate Rob for, for joining us and to tell his story. If you want to hear any of the other stories that we have done so far here on AFL Rewind, you can do so by checking out SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and YouTube. Also, if you have any suggestions on who you'd like to have us bring on to, to uh, future episodes, you can email us at aflrewind at arenafan.com. And lastly, before I let you go, one has I have to mention uh, two things to you. The first thing is, is that if you happen to be looking for more uh, full games of the Arena Football League to watch, if you head over to one of the, the new channels on YouTube, uh, it is uh, Arena Football TV. Just do a search for that, and we'll be putting up some uh, some more I said some more games that you would be able to watch through, throughout the history of the Arena Football League. And considering the one that was just released, as I am taping this, uh, the demo tape for the for the game of Arena Football gives some great insight to the league before it actually started. And lastly. Just recently, there's been an artist who has created two minimalist prints for fans of the Arena Football League and of the uh, Arena Bowl 32 champion Albany Empire. If you head over to Etsy and you do a search for uh, Arena Bowl, you will come across the two prints that are currently available by the gentleman over at Curly Fries Design. They are uh, very reasonably priced, and I have heard that there may be some more uh, minimalist prints uh, that will be given homage to different different historical points in the Arena Football League. I hope you enjoy them. So, uh, thank you for, for joining us for this episode. We do hope to have you here for the next one. So for everybody here at AFL Rewind, I'm Tim Capper. Watch the rebound off the net.